0: Chapter 19 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19. In England Again. Miss Dix now resolved to seek entire rest and change. Her forces seemed for the time being utterly spent. She would sail for Europe, and once there well, let providence determine for her, for she was too weary to plan for herself. At least she would once again see her dear old English friends, the Rathbones of Liverpool, whose devotion had, eighteen years before, lifted her from the brink of the grave. As strength permitted, she would visit the asylums of Europe, to learn from them whatever might be of future service at home. Along with these undefined projects, there floated in her mind a vague hope that she might get to Palestine. Religion, in her mind, largely took the form of fervid personal love for him who went about doing good, and who revealed through his own life that the greatest of all is he who is the servant of all, and she always yearned to tread the soil once pressed by his blessed feet. But beyond these vague purposes all lay undetermined. Man never goes so far as when he knows not whither he is going, was a maxim born of deep personal experience in the at once mystical and practical mind of Oliver Cromwell in one shape or another, this maxim has always expressed the deepest conviction of natures in the same breath self-reliant and God-reliant. None know more clearly the limits of finite ability, and so, inevitably, are they led to look upon the part they are called on to play in life, "'as the stout ship captain looks upon his "'in working his vessel across the Atlantic. "'His to man the rudder, trim the sails, and follow the compass. "'But beyond these personal duties "'lies the whole incalculable realm of calms and gales, "'of unseen currents, of headwinds and fair winds, "'of fogs blotting out headland, sun, or stars.' On these must he patiently wait, meeting each as it comes, and wrestling out of each the best furtherance he can wring from it. Once again was the devout maxim to justify itself in the case of this worn and well-nigh heartbroken woman, who knew no more than that, with a mind ever eager to do good as she found opportunity, she was perforce dropping her sacred work in her native land and vaguely reaching out after rest and recuperation abroad. Early in September 1854, Miss Dix set sail for Liverpool on the steamship Arctic, the ill-fated ship that, on the return voyage, went down with nearly all on board. A touching incident connected with her leaving home is narrated as follows in the New York Daily Tribune of September 11th of that year. I happened to be in the office of the American Steam Packets when Miss Dix called to pay her passage. The clerk handed her a receipt but declined the money, saying that Mr. E. K. Collins, the chief owner of the line, had directed him to request her acceptance of the passage. With much emotion, Miss Dix acknowledged her obligation to Mr. Collins, adding that the sum thus returned to her would enable her to carry out a plan she had much at heart. On board the ship, Miss Dix learned that she had yet more for which to thank Mr. Collins. He had ordered that no one else should be put in her stateroom, thus presenting her with two passages. He was on board when she arrived. She approached to tender her thanks, but taking her hands in his with an emotion that did him honor, he said, The nation, madam, owes you a debt of gratitude which it can never repay, and of which I, as an individual, am only too happy to be thus privileged to mark my sense." Miss Dix could only reply with tears, for, as was evident to all who saw her, her nervous system is completely prostrated. Could we expect it to be otherwise, in view of her immense labors and her grievous disappointments? End quote. In connection with this appreciative act of Mr. E. K. Collins, it may be well here to record that for many years now it had been the habit of railway companies all over the Union to send Miss Dix yearly passes and of express companies to forward, free of charge, all the multifarious matter she was unceasingly collecting for prisons, hospitals, and insane asylums. There remains of the correspondence with her friend Miss Heath, a letter of Miss Dix written on board the Arctic, which throws light on the ruling passion of her life, while at the same time furnishing an amusing comment on the old Latin adage Coilum non animam mutant qui trans mare current. A favorite poem of hers, one indeed that she copied hundreds of times, and sent to friends all over the United States, had always been the little gem beginning Rest is not quitting the busy career. That it had again been floating through her mind during the voyage across the Atlantic seems evident enough from the tenor of her letter. Quote Steamship Arctic, September eleventh, eighteen fifty four Dear Annie, thus far By the good providence of God, we are safely on our voyage. I am now free from seasickness, and, but for the roughness, I could easily employ myself pretty constantly. I pass the time with such a measure of listlessness as affords but few results that will tell for others' good. However, I give you an example of my success. I had observed on Sunday several parties betting on the steamer's run. I waited till the bets were decided, and then asked the winner for the winnings, which I put into the captain's care for the home for the children of indigent sailors in New York. Tonight I am going to ask each passenger for a donation for the same object, as our thank-offering for preservation thus far on our voyage. I shall, I think, get above one hundred and fifty dollars, or perhaps but one hundred dollars. I still regard my plans as doubtful. I have not the slightest interest in going into France or even Italy. In contrast with the aim of my accustomed pursuits, it seems the most trivial use of time. I should like to have some person take my place who would fancy it, if I could receive in exchange a good amount of working strength." The incident of Miss Dix's thus quietly diverting from the pocket of the winner the sum total of the bets on the steamer's run, and transferring it into the till of the home for the children of indigent sailors— affords opportunity for a brief allusion to a charge often brought against her, namely that she followed too literally the Apostle's injunction to be instant in season and out of season. From the variability of human standards of judgment, it will inevitably follow that here is a text which will always be differently interpreted, whether by divines or laymen. It is entirely out of season, the winner of a dozen bets will no doubt say. It is entirely out of season to come to me just when I have pocketed enough to buy a whole box of cigars and disagreeably remind me of the wants of the children of indigent sailors who are not my lookout. I bet to win and smoke, not to relieve human suffering." No doubt his friends would, to a man, be of a like opinion. Meanwhile, the result of an appeal to a higher tribunal, which should impartially weigh in the scale the claim to peace and comfort of the successful better against the sore needs of the children of shipwrecked sailors, might be a reversal of the verdict. For a month or six weeks after her arrival in Liverpool, "'Miss Dick seems really to have sought rest and change "'through seeing old friends and by various excursions "'into interesting parts of the country. "'Still, within a very few days of her setting foot "'on English soil, there were ominous signs "'of what would before long inevitably follow. "'Thus, to her friend, Miss Heath, "'she writes as early as September 22nd, quote, I am still here with dear friends, much occupied with charitable institutions and meetings of the British Scientific Association. All this tires me sadly, but I shall take things easier in a week. It is my purpose to go to Scotland to see the hospitals in 10 days." Quote. Perhaps to the average reader, the strict logical connection between taking things easier in a week and going to Scotland to see the hospitals in ten days may not seem so obvious as apparently it did to the writer. In reality, the Scotch visit was to involve Miss Dix in one of the most arduous undertakings of her life. For a few weeks, however, it was deferred, and the intervening time spent in a run through Ireland one delightful incident of which is described in a letter to Mrs. Rathbone in Liverpool. "Ballinasloe, Ireland, October 25th, 1854. My dear friend, I could not sleep tonight before writing a line to tell you how much I have wished you with me the last fortnight, but especially for the past 9 hours from 7 last night" to four this morning. I reached Parsontown yesterday at 2 p.m., sent a note of introduction to the castle to Lord Ross, asking permission to see his telescope. In half an hour received an invitation to dinner at 7 p.m., and almost immediately his assistant, Mr. Mitchell, arrived at the Parsontown Arms to say that Lord Ross had sent him to conduct me to the castle, in order that the instruments might be seen by day and the machinery. I reserve all details till we meet, simply saying that I was swinging in mid-air, sixty feet from the ground at two in the morning yesterday, Lord Ross, Captain King, Mr. Mitchell, and Mr. Turn, on a massive gallery, "'by turn looking through the most magnificent telescope in the world.'" To this Irish visit, and to the pleasure she was equally enjoying in the scenery and society of England, Miss Dix refers, in a subsequent letter to Miss Heath of Boston, Mass., "'Liverpool, November sixteenth, 1854. "'Dear Annie, I am lately arrived from a tour over Ireland.'" which consumed four entire weeks, a period which I shall always recall with lively interest. Having no great desire and no urgent motive to cross the channel to the continent, I shall not do so, except the climate here prove too severe. Few traveling parties would suit my tastes or habits, and I as little should suit theirs. In fact, The institutions of England do interest me, both literary, scientific, and humane, and in becoming familiar with them, I shall acquire much to remember with pleasure and advantage during the year I propose to complete this side the Atlantic. Nothing can be more distressing than the news from the seat of war, the war in the Crimea where violence and the plague seem to spend their force on both armies. The affliction of families where kindred are so exposed is most painful, and leads to a distress involving serious consequences and increasing demands on hospitals for the insane. There is little prospect of the soon coming of the kingdom of heaven on earth and the peace which is of Christ and his doctrines. Romanism and Church of Englandism are waging as hot a spiritual war as is maintained in the Crimea by physical force, and the heart of pity is petrified under the assaults of bigotry and dogmatism. Social intercourse is interrupted by religious animosities, but where these disturbing influences do not penetrate, society is full of life and interest. Conversation, rather than talking, engages thought and measures time. One feels that something is gained on parting with one's friends, which remains to supply new element for reflections long after the circle which supplied it is dissolved. End quote delightful however to mystics as was this season of change from the protracted labors of so many years and keenly as she enjoyed the opportunity of giving a free breath to her intellectual nature through contact with superior men and women with something worth hearing to say it was a season of change destined to be of short duration of her emphatically held true those words of martineau high hearts are never long without hearing some new call some distant clarion of god even in their dreams and soon they are observed to break up the camp of ease and start on some fresh march of faithful service the visit to scotland was soon to bring to her lips the old familiar cry while such suffering remains unredressed, perish in me every thought of personal ease or social delights. And yet, before proceeding to narrate the great results which came of that visit to Scotland, once again it becomes necessary, as on a previous occasion, to turn back and treat in distinct episode another work of mercy Miss Sticks had been engaged in, the happy outcome of which now first saw the light of day. Within a couple of months of her landing in Liverpool, there came letters from home, which brought to her rejoicing heart the news of a glorious success, the preparations for which she had been laying in the past two years. The nature and extent of this success will be unfolded in the next chapter. End Chapter 19